0: Well, if you are joining us for the first time today, we just finished the book of Exodus about a month ago, and about two or so, three weeks ago, we began our study of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus itself begins with a study of the various kinds of Old Testament sacrifices, and this really takes up the first seven chapters of the book. As we've seen, the first kinds of offerings, the first category of offerings mentioned are food offerings. They're called food offerings to the Lord, and they have a pleasing aroma. The first kind of food offering that we saw was the burnt offering, or perhaps better translated, the whole burnt offering. As I said, the burnt offering is kind of the most basic, generic kind of Old Testament offering that there was. Um, it's kind of the starting point, more or less, for all other offerings. As we said, it has two elements in it, which we see in varying degrees, some more, some less, in all the other sacrifices, Um, almost. On the one hand, there's there's, uh, namely a negative element. There's an atonement for sin. We saw that this is not necessarily, at least with the burnt offering, for any particular sin of the worshiper, but just their overall sinfulness. That needs atonement if they are to offer sacrifice. But sacrifice is not a purely negative thing. It also has a positive element, seen in the fact that this is a food offering to the Lord. You're giving back to God. It's a positive worship element as well. We saw that Christ is our burnt offering, making atonement for our sins and also offering perfect worship on our behalf. Next, we saw last week the grain offering, or as I would translate it, the tribute offering. The tribute offering. We saw that this particular food offering was especially focused on covenant fidelity and faithfulness. It was a tribute given from a covenant servant, the worshiper, to his covenant lord. Yahweh himself, and in so doing, they reaffirmed their loyalty and, and the fact that there was no corruption, there was no infidelity in their covenant to God, and they rested that surely there was no infidelity on the part of God. And we saw that also with the, with the grain offering, Christ is our grain offering, as he is the perfect covenant servant, ever faithful to his covenant Lord, the Father. Well, today we are looking at the last of the food offerings, namely the peace offering, as it is translated by most modern translations. Put simply, as we've done with the burnt offering, with the grain offering, as we will do with the guilt and the sin offering, our primary task today is to see how Christ fulfills this sacrifice. How is he our peace offering? Well, having said that, let's go ahead and dive in and begin with verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 of chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. One of our main tasks today, brothers and sisters, uh, indeed kind of the biggest task I had this last week that I wrestled with is to understand and translate the Hebrew word shalamim, shalamim, which is translated by most modern-day translations as peace offering. Peace offering. The NIV is the only exception calling it the fellowship offering. The actual meaning of the word is actually somewhat difficult to ascertain, Um, and there are more options for this word than any other word that we have studied so far. I kind of laughed when I came to John Owen's commentary on Hebrews Um, because before he starts his commentary he has volume one just goes through like the the meaning and the symbolism of of all the various aspects of the law before he goes into it and when he comes to the peace offering to this word Shalamim, i laughed because he says it is by translators rendered with more variety than any other word used in this matter and that's true it kind of like there's, there's no lack of different interpretations of this word. Well, one of our tasks today, then, will be not an exhaustive study of the different translations, but to work through some of the, the options. And I, I think, I feel confidently, come to a determination of what it means. And that will help us to determine the purpose of this sacrifice. Um, we're not just spinning our etymological wheels for, for the fun of doing so. I think it will help us to see ultimately what the purpose of this sacrifice is. Before we do that, however, I would like us first to go through the passage and note those things about the peace offering which are obvious, um, things which are not difficult to ascertain, particularly as it differs from the other offerings that we've seen, namely the the burnt offering. Um, I think this, too, will also assist us in understanding its meaning later on. Well, the first thing we can see from verse 1 about the peace offering is that the sacrifice could be either male or female. It says if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female. Like the burnt offering, the animal has to be without blemish. But unlike the burnt offering, the animal could be female as opposed to male. One commentator, uh, Gordon Wenham, says... Um, that this actually signifies that this is a sacrifice of lesser significance. Since elsewhere, uh, don't take that too harsh, ladies, um, but basically, sacrifices, uh, the most valuable sacrifices, uh, the preference is for a male sacrifice, ultimately because it points to the man, Jesus Christ, right? That is also true, though, that there is a lesser significance. Uh, to this sacrifice, perhaps in the sense that it is mostly a voluntary offering. Um, You could or could not give it in most cases. In others, you had to give it. It was crucial to worship. It was a component that you could not have worship without it. This one, not so much. Not to say it's not important. Um, Perhaps we could argue in a way it's the most important of all, right, because it's voluntary. Um, But it is in some sense a lesser significance And we see that in the fact that it has fewer requirements. Okay, Verse 2. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. Here, too, just like the burnt offering, there is an element of atonement seen in the fact that the worshiper places his hands on the animal to be sacrificed signifying a transfer of guilt and sin. Similarly, like the burnt offering, the blood would be taken and thrown on the altar to, uh, to purify it and cleanse it before the sacrifice was actually burned on it. However, this too, like the burnt offering, is probably not for any particular sin. Um, those offerings are only the guilt and the sin offerings, which we'll see in the next two chapters this is more like the burnt offering just because of the general sinfulness of the worshiper. Okay, Verse 3. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys, whereas with the whole burnt offering, everything—excuse me—but the skin, the hide of the animal is to be burned. With the peace offering, only the fat or organs that are somehow related, um, either because they have fat on them or they are kind of in the general area of a lot of fat in the body, only those are to be given to the Lord. First, it talks about fat that covers and is on the entrails. Um, I, I always had Josh in my mind as I'm like, he's going to think everything's dumb because he knows actual anatomy. But from what I read, this is called visceral fat. Um, so often when you see like a picture of like your diaphragm in here, you see the intestines. That's actually covered by a whole bunch of fat. And this is why around November and December, when you start to you know like prepare for the cold weather... Um, and you get a little pudgy down here, you're, you're adding on visceral fat. It's the fat that kind of covers and goes over your intestines. Furthermore, the two kidneys, the two kidneys with their fat, kidneys are not only generally kind of near the visceral fat, although they're kind of more up here, but they do have a special fat around them. Um, I know especially in some kinds of... Uh, Oh, what's the baking, like pastries and stuff like that? Uh, Sometimes they use suet. Have you ever heard of suet? It's a special kind of fat. Um, You can buy beef suet or something. And it's around the kidneys. Um, That fat with the kidneys themselves, um, because they're near fat, would also be offered. And kidneys themselves just kind of generally are associated with fat um, in Scripture Lastly, as far as the long lobe of the liver, as the ESV translates it, honestly, we're not really quite sure what that means. The word in Hebrew means something along the lines of an appendage or even a finger. Most suggest that it is the caudate lobe of the liver. Um, Why the caudate? Um, The word actually in Latin for that actually means like a tail. Uh, and perhaps maybe it's getting at this original idea of like a tail, an appendage of it. Why that specifically, we're not told. Perhaps um, it's just the choicest part of the liver. It's connected with the fat. It has the overall purpose of all the other things. Um, And the purpose of giving the fat to the Lord is you're giving the best. Um, We are in a society that is anti-fat. Fat is bad thin is good. In the ancient world, it was the opposite. Um, you, You see Joseph, when his brothers come, he says, I will give you the best of the land, the fat of the land, right? Because if you have fat portions, you're not starving. You have enough to eat and you have life and health and all kinds of things. And so it says in verses 16 through 17, all fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you neither eat fat nor blood. It was all the Lord's. If you've ever had a steak, the best kinds of steak, the best cuts have good marbling in them, good fat. They are tasty and juicy, right? It's the best. So also, the fat portion is the best of the animal, and so it is also given to the Lord. Verse 5 says, Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now an important feature of the peace offering, and one which we will consider later on when we try to determine the exact meaning of the word, is that it is rarely, if ever, given on its own. You would never just bring a peace offering. In fact, it always seems to be preceded by a burnt offering, as it is indicated here. Presumably, as the burnt offering was being consumed on the fire, then you would offer the peace offering, and after the blood was thrown on, they would take all the fat portions and put them on the burnt offering as it was being consumed. The only thing to note here, or... Just remember that before we go on. It's always preceded by a burnt offering. Now, the rest of the chapter is more or less the same, except it gives instructions for peace offerings of lesser value, just as we saw with the burnt offerings. The only exception here um, is that the only other options were that it could be a lamb or a goat. No birds could be given. The reason being is that um, the peace offering, uh, the fat was given to the Lord. The rest was given back to the worshiper to eat a fellowship meal with the Lord. And I don't know if you've ever hunted doves or anything like that. There's not a whole lot of meat on them. So one single pigeon or turtle dove is not enough for a fellowship meal. So the only animals for a peace offering would be cows, lambs, or goats. Other than that, the instructions are virtually identical. Whatever the animal was be, would be, the hands of the worshiper would be placed on it, it would be killed, the, the priest throws the blood on the side of the altar, and the fatty portions are given to the Lord. Well, having established all that, let's now try to understand the meaning of the word shalomim in Hebrew. Translated as peace offerings... Um, But just as with the grain offerings, I think that the meaning of the word, at least for me, um, was the most decisive in understanding the purpose, uh, and therefore the application uh, of this offering to us. The word, as I said, is shalimim, shalimim. It is most commonly translated as peace offering. And really, it's not hard to see why. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom, you can hear the similarity there. It is argued then by some that these are peace offerings in the sense that they show the worshiper is at peace with God, presumably after their sins have been atoned for. It's also argued that this is why there is a fellowship meal afterwards. It shows that there is friendship and peace between the worshiper and God. Along similar lines, some translate shalomim as a salvation offering, a salvation offering. Before you think that that is too far-fetched, that's actually how the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, translates this word several times. And interestingly, elsewhere in scripture, shalom or peace does have a, a very much a salvific significance, and it can be used interchangeably with the word salvation itself. Think of Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. There, publishing peace is the same as publishing salvation. And so it is argued that the salvation offering therefore signifies the worshiper is in a state of salvation, or maybe it's a thanksgiving offering for a particular, maybe for eternal salvation, um, or for some kind of temporal deliverance, some other kind of salvation God has wrought for them. I'm not particularly persuaded by these options, for the reason that the peace offering was not given all the time. If its purpose was to show that the worshiper was at peace with God, that's a very important thing and it would not be given all the time should the worshiper therefore conclude that he is not at peace with God if he doesn't have that. Maybe that he doesn't have fellowship with God because he hasn't had the fellowship meal afterwards. Furthermore, it seems that with the giving of the burnt offering or the grain offering, the worshiper is at peace with God. Anytime God accepts an offering, there's peace between the worshiper and God. I'm not too persuaded of that argument. Others argue that the idea behind shalomim is one of completion, completion. Even the meaning of shalom, it's not merely the meaning of the absence of conflict, but it's more along the lines of wholeness, intactness, completion. There's nothing that is missing. The word shalom itself comes from the verb shalim, which means to complete or to finish something. In fact, in Nehemiah 6, when the walls are completed, construction is completed, the word that is used is shalem. They are completed. There's no longer any bricks lacking. It's entirely complete. Well, it's argued then that the shalemim means the final or the completing sacrifice. And this goes along with the idea that it's given with other sacrifices. It's the last one to be given. And so it's argued with the peace offering it brings everything to an end, perhaps like how I give the benediction at the, the, the end of every service, right? Here, too, I'm not very convinced that that's the meaning. Again, there were many cases when the peace offerings was not given, and it's not like worship was incomplete. Um, it's not as though something was lacking, uh, even though they weren't given, so I'm not particularly persuaded that that's what it means. Now, it should be said that the one element that everyone does agree is that at the end, there is a fellowship meal. However you take the word shalomim, everyone agrees that is a sign of fellowship. And the NIV just kind of takes that and says, well, uh, there's a lot of options here. We're just going to call this the fellowship offering. Um, And that's not entirely wrong, but it still doesn't really answer the actual meaning of shalomim. For myself, I think the best way to understand the word shalomim is with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I think that thanksgiving offering perhaps would be the best translation, more than a peace offering. My reasons for thinking this are several. First, these offerings are almost always explicitly tied to giving thanks to God. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7 gives us the three instances when a a peace offering would be given. Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 16. It says... And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, that is the first kind of peace offering, a thanksgiving offering. The word there is todah, todah. If you were to go to Israel today, uh, let's say you were at a restaurant and your waiter were to refill your water and you just wanted to say a quick thanks, you'd say todah, just means thank you. And so the first occurrence that you would give a peace offering, so-called, is for a thanksgiving offering. Verse 12 continues with the other stipulations if it's for thanksgiving. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for Thanksgiving, he shall bring uh, his offering with loaves of leavened bread. Now just a side note there, notice that you could bring leavened bread with the peace offering. Um, Somebody asked me last week and I was like, that's a totally brilliant question. I don't know why I didn't think of that. We saw that with the grain offerings, it could not have uh, anything with leaven, yeast or even honey because honey would be... Used for fermentation, right But I said there would often be drink offerings of wine poured with a grain offering, and so somebody asked me, "Well, if fermentation and leaven and alcohol is not supposed to be with the grain offering, why would they offer wine and I thought that's a great question I never even thought of um, that's a dentist question, right My answer was that leaven, uh, and I guess honey and fermentation is a symbol sometimes of corruption and sin, right? But it's only a symbol. There's nothing inherently wrong, inherently sinful with eating leavened bread, right? Praise the Lord. Um, Just as there's nothing inherently sinful with being unclean, right? And so we can say that there are, even here, we see the, the lack of inherent sinfulness with leaven in the fact that even with the peace offerings, some leavened offerings could be brought. Okay, Moving on to verse 16. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering, or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. Here we are told of the other two instances when someone would give a peace offering, either when they had made a vow to God, that if he delivered them, if he did such and such a thing, then once they were delivered, they would pay a a sacrifice, uh, they would pay their vows to God, or a free will offering. As far as paying or performing vows, the Psalms speak about this a lot. Psalm 61. Oh, that's what I meant to do. I meant to use Psalm 61 for the call to worship. I chose 66. I just realized this now. Psalm 61, which we were supposed to sing for our opening psalm, says in verse 8, So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Or Psalm 116, verses 17 through 18, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Similarly, the Psalms speak about free will offerings, and they too are, com- are mentioned with thanksgiving. Psalm 54, 6, With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to the Lord. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Notice, with all of these three occurrences, whether the thanksgiving offering, the vow, or the free will, they are somehow related with giving thanks to God. As far as what the actual difference between these is, um, I have to say I'm not entirely sure, but this is kind of my best guess. With a vow offering, as we've seen, it's when someone had vowed to God in a certain circumstance for deliverance. When he delivers them, they give the offering in thanksgiving. There are several interesting examples of vow offerings in Scripture, some which actually make up very interesting parts of the narrative at times. Um, The one I want to show was actually not a real vow offering. It was fabricated by Absalom when he was conspiring against David. Um, But it shows how vow offerings worked. We're told in 2 Samuel 15, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. So it's a fabricated story. It's his pretense for starting his rebellion against his father. And yet there is truth in it, and it shows us how vows work. There'd be a situation um, that I keep, because of Reformation, I keep keep on thinking of Martin Luther, right? What was his vow in the... uh, In the lightning storm, he said, I'll I'll be a monk, right? He vowed that to the Lord. He was in a dire circumstance, and then he fulfilled that, and the rest is history, as they say. As far as how that differs from a thanks offering or a free will offering, this is a guess, but this is kind of, I I think, an educated guess. I think it depended on the situation. With a vow offering, you had made a vow, With the thanksgiving offering, no vow was involved, but perhaps God had also delivered you out of some kind of circumstance. Maybe you had been ill and God healed you. Or maybe he had blessed your crops very very abundantly that year. You didn't make a vow beforehand, but he did so, and so nevertheless, you give thanks to God. How that uh, differs from a free will offering? Free will offerings seem to be, if there's kind of one phrase we could sum it up is just because. It's just because. You didn't make a vow to God. There wasn't even necessarily some, some particular goodness. Um, there wasn't some particular deliverance you're thinking of. It's just the overall goodness of God. You decide to give a free will offering, and so you pay your vow, and they're all related to thanksgiving in some way. This makes sense of why they consist of fat portions. You're giving the best back to God. As you say thank you, you're giving the best back to him. That's appropriate, right? However, one thing still remains for us to do. That is to say what the actual meaning of Shulamim is. I think circumstantially it's best understood as a thanksgiving offering, but what does the word itself actually mean? We still haven't given any answers here. I think that the best way to understand shalomim is with the concept of repayment. Repayment. The verb sholam can mean to complete, but it can mean also to repay someone. And that actually makes sense. If you think of someone giving you someone, you kind of complete their kindness by repaying them. Or if you are in debt, you kind of fill the hole in repaying them. You're, You're completing it means to repay. Sometimes it can speak of making restitution. So for example, Exodus twenty-two, twelve: 12. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, he kills it or sells it, he shall repay, yeshalem, five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. At other times, it can speak of repaying in terms of vengeance, especially God's vengeance against his enemies. In fact, very interestingly, in Isaiah 34, 8, it says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. That's interesting because the word for vengeance in Hebrew there is the closest word that I could find to shalamim. It's the Hebrew word shalumim. Shalumim, shalamim, very, very similar. And it means. Vengeance in terms of repayment. God is paying them back for their sins. Lastly, and for me this this was kind of the most convincing, the verb shalem itself, to repay, is the the verb most commonly used to speak of paying a vow. You're paying a vow. We read language like that without even thinking of it necessarily in terms of payment or recompense, but it's actually the same word used for making repayment or restitution. In fact, it's interesting, uh, in Psalm 116.4, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. You always pay your vows. I think then that the word shalomim most literally means a paying back to God in the sense of giving back. Obviously, we can never pay back God. um, What would be equal to all the goodness that he gives us? But in this sense, it's a return. It's very interesting. The Puritans, uh, or maybe just everybody back then, they often spoke of giving thanks and our responses to God as our returns to God for his goodness. We could say that this is an offering of returns, not that you could pay. Um, Who could ever pay back God but you are giving back in terms of thanksgiving. Interestingly, perhaps you're familiar with the phrase in Scripture, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? Familiar with that? That's actually Psalm 116, which talks about paying vows, and I think he's getting at the irony, I am paying my vows of thanksgiving, but what can I actually pay the Lord Um, I think that that shows us that's kind of how it's understood. It's a paying back of thanksgiving. That shows us then the function of the peace offerings. They were thanksgiving offerings back to the Lord for all his goodness. Of course, they could never pay back God. What can you give God that he has not already given you? He gives you everything, right? And yet God desires that his people be a thankful people, that they express their gratitude for all his mercies. He saved them out of slavery under ruthless, murderous taskmasters. He made them a special people, declaring them his covenant people, his nation among all the nations. He brought them to a good land. He subdued their enemies, and all he really asked in, re- in, in return that you give thanks, a heart of gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving for all his blessings. Sadly, brothers and sisters, as we all know, but for a few exceptions, this was not the history of the people of Israel. At best, at best, their peace offerings, they offered them with the fat of spotless animals at best, and yet their heart was far from God. They did not have what the peace offering signified, which is a heart of gratitude, the fat of the heart offered to the Lord. God says in Amos, Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Boast of your freewill offerings for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. They offered the fat of animals. They offered unblemished animals and yet they loved injustice and they had hearts of ingratitude ingratitude towards the Lord. They offered the fat of animals, and yet they kept back the best part of their own hearts for themselves. God says in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's talking about the rulers of Jerusalem. He calls them the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. At best, their offerings were ceremonially good, but their hearts were full of ingratitude. Worse than that, often they were not Uh, not only were their hearts far from God, but their offerings reflected the ingratitude of their hearts as well. Malachi deals with this especially. He says in Malachi 1.14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Malachi 1.6-8, A son honors his father, a servant honors his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. But sadly, the very worst of all, the worst case scenario, their vows were not even to the Lord, but they displayed the worst sort of ingratitude by worshiping and making vows to other gods. God says in Jeremiah 44, 25, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You and your wives have declared with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have made to make drink offerings to the Queen of Heaven, the goddess Asherah, and to pour out drink offerings to her. In fact, they are so blind, when God brings judgment on them, they double down on their idolatry. They say to Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty and prospered and saw no disaster, but since we left off making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. They attribute all the goodness that Yahweh gave to them to a false goddess. And even when God lovingly comes along to discipline his people, to turn their hearts back to him, what do they do? They say, We will not do it. That's how we lost all the goodness. It came from the Queen of Heaven. As a side note, I can't help but think that the only time, I'm not trying to pick on Roman Catholics, the only time the phrase the Queen of Heaven is used in the Bible is to speak of the false goddess Asherah. It's never a good thing to worship the Queen of Heaven in the Bible. They were supposed to be a people of gratitude, and yet so often they gave the utmost ingratitude to God. And yet, brothers and sisters, aren't you and I so often just like them? God has rescued us from the pit of hell He washed our sins and at best we offer outwardly good thanksgiving in song or prayer. Outward gratitude while our hearts are far from God. Full of ingratitude, even grumbling. Perhaps secretly thanking other idols that we worship. He gave us a new heart. He placed his Holy Spirit within us. But so often, so often we offer to the Lord blemished and lame offerings of weak praise, distracted prayer, and half-hearted repentance. He has given us eternal life and we will one day, He will one day glorify us and transform our bodies and we shall behold God in heaven for all eternity and get at the very worst. The ultimate display of ingratitude, we too chase after other gods. We worship the idols of our heart. And yet, brothers and sisters, our great hope, indeed the great hope of Old Testament Israel as well, is that Jesus Christ is our perfect thanksgiving offering. His heart was never far from God. With Jesus, it was never merely external worship to Yahweh, but his heart was just as equally matching in fervor and love to God. He withheld nothing from the Father, everything he gave willfully. He did not keep the fat for himself, he gave everything to God. You know, fat, as I've said, is associated with the goodness of life, the most valuable portions. And yet in many ways, brothers and sisters, the most valuable portion, the most valuable gift, is life itself. This is why Christ can say you should cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. Very, very valuable things even today, but especially in in the ancient world. Why? So that you can enter eternal life. Truly this is true of this mortal life as well. There are many things, valuable things, that men will part with if they can themselves keep life. Wealthy men pour out vast fortunes trying to just stay alive. It's the most choice part of life itself. Even this Christ did not withhold. Freely he gave to the Father, and he did so for the ungrateful sinners the world. He never for an instant gave the ingratitude of worshiping something other than his Father, but in all things gave the gratitude of perfect devotion. Christian, as ungrateful as you and I are, and we are very ungrateful, by faith we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ today. and His thankfulness is our own in Christ, you have the sweet-smelling aroma of his life upon you, and God is pleased with you. In Christ, you are not accounted ungrateful, though you are. With Reformation Day coming up, we remember the phrase in Latin, simul et peccator, simultaneously righteous in Christ and a sinner in their own heart. We might similarly say that by faith, the Christian is simul gratus et ingratus, simultaneously grateful in Christ while having a great deal of ingratitude within their own heart. When your heart is full of ungratitude and you fear that the Lord will pay you according to your sins, remember it shall not happen. Not only did Christ atone for your sins, but he is the perfect peace, thanksgiving offering. In your stead. Furthermore, Christ is our peace offering insofar as he is our means of fellowship with God. Just as the worshipper afterward would sit down in a holy place to eat the rest of the peace offering in a shared meal with God, so Christ by his sacrifice has reconciled us back to the back to God, and we now have fellowship with God. As John says in John 1.3, "...that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us." And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, it seems that to prove this point, Christ gave us a fellowship meal. And what is it that we eat but Christ Himself? The blood representing His body, the wine representing His blood, he is our fellowship that we have with God, the Father. Christian, in light of all this goodness, in light of such a marvelous redemption, such a great Redeemer who offered perfect sacrifices, in light of such mercy and grace which covers our sin, give thanks to God, give thanksgiving to your God. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your, your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Bless your God with your life, Christian. Bless him with the fat portions of your life. Bless him with praise on your lips and holiness of life. I pray that we would be a church that blesses the Lord, a church of gratitude for all of his manifest mercies to us. Let us render real thanksgiving not just mere words. The Puritan Simeon Ash says, God does not feed us with fair words. We do not merely hear of His bounties, but we see, touch, taste, enjoy the comforts of His good providences. Let us answer our God, therefore, with realities. Let us not, therefore, dream of repaying God's real favors with mere formalities, Let us love not only in word and tongue, but in deed and truth. That's the thanksgiving that God wants from you, brothers and sisters. Not merely to say thanks, not merely to sing praise, but to give the best of your life to Him. The fat portions. On a practical note, we've talked about this before, but let me again encourage you to keep this old Protestant practice of days of thanksgiving. For the Old Testament worshiper, if God had done something for which they were particularly thankful, maybe they'd had a new baby, they'd been delivered, or something like that, right, from, a, from an illness or something, um, they could, by faith, express their thanksgiving by giving a peace offering to the Lord. We don't have anything like that today, right? And it's not uh, an insufficiency of our worship, it's the superiority of our worship. There is no longer a temple because we are the temple. And yet, the Reformed have agreed that it is still fitting to have days and times of thanksgiving. At times, this would be done nationally. It could be done by a single church. It could be done by a family or even an individual. In fact, our confession of faith actually talks about these. It says, Thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. During these days, they set aside time specifically for giving thanks to God in prayer and song. And then they would celebrate his goodness normally with some kind of a feast. And if that sounds like the Puritan day of thanksgiving that we celebrate in November, that's because that's exactly what that was. It was a day of thanksgiving for sustaining them through a harsh winter, um, through, through giving them allies with the natives Um, who could help them, and so they were giving a day of thanksgiving to God. But days of thanksgiving were very, very common. The quote that I gave you from Simeon Ash, it's actually from a sermon that he preached on a day of thanksgiving after a battle, a victory of the parliamentarian army in the English Civil War. The whole long title of it is is, uh, titled Real Thankfulness, A sermon preached in Paul's church, London, upon the second day of November, 1645, at a public thanksgiving for the taking of the towns and castles of Carmarthen and Monmouth in Wales. That was a great victory for them, and so they gave thanks to God. It was quite common. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, when God gives you some particular blessing, particularly one that you have been praying for for a long time, have a special day of Thanksgiving. Don't get stressed out. I'm sure all the wives are like, I have to make a turkey? No, that's not all what this means. It could be some kind of feast, maybe something above the normal, but the purpose is not this great, great huge meal, but Thanksgiving to God. That's a great practice to have for a family. That's a great way to show your children Thanksgiving to God. It also has a great blessing. For yourself as well. Thomas Goodwin talks about this in his book on Thanksgiving, which remember is called the Return of Prayers, the responding and thanksgiving to God for answered prayers. Even there you hear kind of the language of repaying and returning, right? But he says one of the reasons why we ought to express, expressly give thanks to God is because there is a blessing given in the giving of thanks. You do not give thanks to God when God answers your prayers and blesses you. He says, You will lose much of your comfort. There is no greater joy than to see prayers answered. The receiving of an answer and blessing from God makes joy to abound and overflow. Yea, even when we pray for others, if our prayers be answered for them, our joys are exceeding great. It is a comfort in many ways, he says. First, To hear from God, as to hear from a friend, though it be but two or three words, if at the bottom it is signed, your loving father, your assured friend, it satisfies abundantly. Secondly, to remember that God is mindful of us, accepts our works, fulfills his promises. Therefore, you lose much of your comfort in blessings when you do not observe answers to your prayers and thanksgiving. Receive that extra blessing of the Lord. Have a heart of gratitude to the Lord and do so especially because Christ, as your perfect peace offering, has covered your sin and given you his righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending us your Son who is our very life. He has given us life by his death. In his atonement, we have eternal life, Father, and we thank you. Father, what a marvelous privilege of all the blessings you gave us, your own son. We thank you for that, Father. Father, would you make us a people of gratitude? Would you grant us True repentance for ingratitude, Lord. Not just an acknowledgement that we don't honor you and give thanks as we ought, but true repentance, Lord, a true turning of the heart to be a thankful people, a people of gratitude, Lord. And in doing so, would you give us those other blessings that Goodwin talks about, Lord? The blessing of comfort in seeing that you answer us You speak to us as our loving Father and our assured friend, and so we give thanks. We pray this now, Lord, in Jesus' name.